a, a test to try to basically grow as myself and make connections and provide some value and explore some impossibilities. Loss to risk to volatility. Stress is bad for learning. It's a good real world experience kind of thing. I would say that that game theory, the science of strategic interaction is in microeconomics. Teaching is like a whole nother ball game. Like that's my point of view. It gets dangerous when you start assuming what other people's preferences are. What's up guys, it's Dan Cates. And today I've got a very special guest. Um, the only poker player I've ever known that's graduated from Harvard. He's also, um, he's also taught at Harvard for nine years. He's taught uh, behavioral economics and game theory among other things. In addition, he's an author of four books and has been a professional poker player for many years. Brandon Adams, what's going on? What's up? Not much. Uh, I'm actually, I should tell you, when I was younger, I uh, I had a, a little bit of an aspiration to go to Harvard, but I lacked the grades in particular. Uh, and I noticed it actually was very, very difficult. I didn't realize how difficult it was until I, um, until I actually tried to apply. And it was like, whoa, okay, these guys have some serious resumes. Um, so congratulations, you must have done extraordinary in school and had extracurricular activities and all that stuff. Um, I know you played tennis. I don't know if that had any significance for you. You're like, uh, well, I wasn't, I wasn't good at tennis. Oh, okay, okay. No, uh, my path was unusual. Um, I, I took college courses when I was in high school. I, I took uh, courses at university of West Florida Yeah, and I had a, a fair number of college credits by the time I graduated high school, like like 70 out of 120 needed to graduate. Yeah. So uh, when I was going to undergrad, I decided to go to University of Florida because I could finish pretty quickly. I just needed to do an additional 50 credits or whatever. So uh, I actually finished high school in 97 and college in 98 at University of Florida. Um, oh, okay. And, and then... Um, I was young and like my grades were good, but I was not really going to get into a top grad school and I wasn't quite done with school. I really enjoyed college and I was kind of thinking about what to do next. Um, so I actually stayed around University of Florida after I graduated and took some some grad courses just as a as a post back, uh, it was sort of like I graduated early, but for no point because I wasn't ready to leave. Um, and then I decided that maybe I wanted to go to grad school, and I was kind of looking at different grad schools like MBA programs, doctorate in business programs, and I was realizing that I wasn't going to get in probably based on my University of Florida background. Um, but I, I was a very like bad student in college in the sense that my attendance rate was under 5%. I was very, I was very studious. Uh, I read, a, I read a lot of books. I spent a huge amount of time in the library and oh. I would often like work through the full textbook of, of a course that I might have like in oh, the first of the semester, but, but like, I never went to class. So, so my GPA <laughs> was not amazing. It was like three, six, four or whatever. So uh, three, six, four coming out of Florida, you weren't going to get in any place. I did have like really good uh, test scores. I think the, the GRE I had, 2270 out of 2400 which would basically get you in any program so i had like the i had the gre set up and i had uh nothing else going for for my resume so i had the idea that i could go to the london school of economics for a year and do like a very academic program there 
And then um, maybe if I did well, I could, I could get into a top program. And so that's what I did. So I went to LSE for a year and that gave me the sort of credential credentialism that I needed to, um, to get into Harvard. So, okay. so then, uh, then I applied and got in. We got in. It, that the unconventional route is also a success. Maybe even and sometimes more of a success. Like why do you have to go the conventional route? Um, I find it really funny that you like work through books. I and uh, you know are often at the library. Like I would think that would be a tougher thing to do than to go to class. Personally, I would think going to class is the easiest thing. Well, if you're gonna do something. Um, or at least easy in comparison to working through the actual textbooks because, uh, you know, when you're talking about complicated and very sophisticated subjects like behavioral economics and game theory, uh, especially when taken seriously, I can just see working through these textbooks like not being an easy feat, at least at first, because I, uh, I originally studied math uh, myself until I realized I did not love math. So I gave up that. I was like, what am I going to do with this? Whatever. Um, I switched to computer science, which was also not that easy, but it was a lot more interesting and fun than um, those classes. And uh, yeah, I, I would, I'm, I'm just surprised. It seems like counterintuitive that you work through the workbooks and not uh, attend class. Well, I'm a very visual learner. I, I learn with text and I'm a bit ADD, but oddly, if you're a bit ADD, you can get sort of hyper-focused on certain things. So sometimes if I'm reading a book that I'm interested in, I can get hyper-focused for a long period of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a benefit. Um, and... I found in-class learning to be almost impossible or at least super inefficient. I just always felt I was just totally wasting my time relative to reading on my own. Um, I just never did it. Even at the London School of Economics, my attendance rate was under 15%. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to have to call you out on something. And by the way, uh, yeah, I, to allude to what I was, to repeat what I was saying earlier, the uh, benefit of ADD is you can get super focused on something um, that that's many of these uh, learning would you call them disorders uh, actually have benefits um, they have other sides of how they how they positive sides uh, I well before I call you out I will also admit that I studied game theory myself a little bit too I failed it twice so this does seem to suggest that there's something wrong with the education system. Um, however, I find it really uh, ironic that you barely went to class and you decided, you know what, I'm going to go again to school. Am I missing something or maybe I misunderstood you? And you just decided this was a waste of time. So I'm, now I'm going to go to a very expensive school, Harvard, and... Uh, and keep continue my studies like i don't really follow well i really enjoyed being around the college environment that okay. was for i i realized that that was sort of my favorite place to be kind of still is like i always look for reasonable excuses i've been teaching at university of miami some recently um I think college environments are just amazing and people should cherish their time there, even college towns, right? And yeah, you could hang out in the college town and not engage in a curriculum. And that might have some benefits as well. Um, what I was doing was uh, a doctorate program where it wasn't expensive because you were sort of on a program with a stipend and you did teaching and stuff like that. Um, and uh, it was part of a track to maybe do that over the long term. I decided I didn't like research enough to do that. Um, but I, I love the academic environment and 
I enjoyed teaching. I did not like attending class or I did not like attending class all of the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see how uh, college environments are really, can be really inspiring places are actually, why don't you tell us what, uh, what you love so much, so much about them? Yeah. I think that that age is a special age, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of your peak energy and intelligence and also perhaps your peak flexibility, like lifestyle flexibility, if you will. Um, so it's a very, it's a very inspiring time in life. And it's a time probably of the highest growth, like you're developing very quickly. Um, so just to be around that, even if you're no longer in that stage of life yourself is very inspiring. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's like a poker equivalent for people who are trying to learn poker. I guess people can have, I, it's definitely the case that people learn together much more effectively if that's what they're looking for. That sort of thing. That's one parallel that it seems to remind me of. But I do remember that uh, the college life with all the, the social life and the people that are around um, can be, it can, you can, uh, can create some really uh, positive friendships and have a really great lifestyle. Yeah, with poker, the concept of the poker house, right? That's like poker college. There have been some great poker houses that have developed a lot of top talents, right? You think back to like the the Durr poker house with the Deng brothers and Benefield and and even Galfond in there every once in a while. Like I, I think the uh, the concept of the poker house is like poker college. The thing the thing is stress is bad for learning, right? That's yeah. why one of the one of the trends at places like Harvard that I'm very much against is they're always trying to pile more and more stuff into the curriculum and make oh, things that's... more stressful. And and stress is bad for learning, right? We we know this the cortisol flooding your brain is is terrible for your brain, it's terrible for learning, it's terrible for your body, right? And so the optimal learning environment has just the right amount of stress at just the right times, but really not too much stress. Um, and poker is difficult because there's a lot of stress. And yeah. if you if you really wanted the ideal poker college, like for one year, you would set it up where you had a lot of smart people that committed to studying the game very hard together, but somehow they they committed to spending 75, 80% of their time actually studying and discussing and only 20% of their time playing because the playing causes a lot of stress that hurts the learning. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I found as I piled more and more things on my plate uh, that I was actually doing it too much. It was overwhelming me in a lot of ways. Uh, I did have the logic that, you know, even though, and I, I noticed you wrote a book on being an organi orga organized for the not so organized person. I was not fundamentally very organized. And that's probably a problem that a lot of poker players can relate to. Um, but I, I have the logic that, okay, well, all these, these hoops, these humps are sort of just things, they're just relatively humps. They can be things that can be, um, how do you say? They can be things that can be, uh, like what is stressful is relative in a way in that like there's a lot of things that go on in your life and the more that you push yourself the more stress you can handle um and i just figured all of them are humps and i could just push myself through it but it doesn't exactly work that way uh i think there's truth to that side of things but yeah it's not healthy or effective to push too hard uh i found is that kind of a frustrating thing um i do want to talk about your books by the way because uh i am curious how you helped or decide or what sort of 
methods you had in dealing with not fundamentally being organized because uh like i said that's not a skill that really poker players need and it might be one that a lot of them especially if they're transitioning out of poker uh are or doing something out of poker like i know that your teacher uh will have to learn to do something outside of poker yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll just make one point on the stress thing, and then we can we can talk books. Um, okay. I think I think stress uh, is bad for learning and is bad for health. I think that in poker you have sort of conditioning and you have stress, and they're similar, but there there are some differences, like you've been conditioned in a way to loss, to risk, to volatility, because each time you've experienced volatility, the next time you experience the volatility is not so dramatic for your mind, right? Yeah. Um, so that makes it look like stress is good for you in the sense that you over overcome things, but, but stress in the sense of, something that's causing the fear response, something that's causing the the adrenal response, something that's flooding your your body with cortisol like that that's sort of always bad for you. Right. Uh, okay. So you want to you want to minimize stress but the but the conditioning that comes from experience um makes it look like you have good stress resilience and or makes it look like stress is good for you, I guess. Okay. On the on the on the book side, um, yeah, I have uh, I have four books. Um, the bestseller is actually a poker novel that I wrote in two thousand five called "Broke: A Poker Novel." Um, yeah. It was just random stories that I made up based on things that I observed happening around that time, and that was a lot of fun. I haven't read it to see how it's aged. I hope it's aged pretty well. It was a lot of fun to to write, um, and I think that sold a decent number of copies, like somewhere in the five to twelve thousand range. Um, hmm. Oh wow, that's nice. Then I have a a couple of books. Well, I have a textbook for my course in behavioral finance that sold very few copies, maybe like five hundred or a thousand. Um, then I have Setting Sun, which was a book on the U.S. economic situation in the mid-2010s. That's that sold a fair number of copies. I haven't looked at the figures. And then Personal Organization for Degenerates, which was out in 2017, which has sold a pretty fair number of copies, especially, strangely enough, in audio, where it sold, uh, I don't know, some thousands of copies. There was It was a very good... Uh, guy that did the narration, his name is Mike Dawson, and he has a, a gravelly voice that suited the material well, and it sold, <laughs> it sold pretty well on Audible. Um, so it's about, it's about personal organization for people that, that have weaknesses or that struggle versus in their, in their planning versus execution, I guess, right? Yeah. Because I, I would I would say that um, you have a concept in behavioral economics called hyperbolic discounting, right? Which is All right, well, I don't even know what that is. So whoever's watching is probably not going to know. So you, yeah, go ahead and explain. It's it's that um, rational individuals, Homo economicus, behaves as if they have a discount rate for deferred consumption. And let's just say rationally that discount rate should be like 10% or 5%, right? Yeah. And so if I uh, offer you more than that, you're willing to defer consumption, right? If I say, Dan, you know, give me a dollar today with 100% certainty, you're gonna get a dollar 20 in a year. You should, you should do that because- Yeah, if it's 100%, and, I don't think it is, but okay. 
and 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 then um lifestyle decisions are also a form of deferred consumption or there's a form of discounting involved right yeah. like yeah, sure i mean you can do that with your time too i presume and all sorts of currencies yeah i i uh run on the treadmill and i hate it like i really do i i enjoy maybe 20 percent of the time but often i'll have a goal for myself like i'm gonna run three miles in this period of time yeah and like I'm hating the last six or 10 minutes. Like I'm literally counting down the seconds. I'm really not enjoying it at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, join the club. I'm sure. I don't think there's a long list of people that enjoy the treadmill, man. If you could find a way to make people enjoy the treadmill, this is what soul cycles about. This is why they, they do the soul cycle, right? Because it's like a bit more fun. Now there's music and you're the group of people and uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, go the, on. Point, the point is that it is if a form of deferred consumption. There, there are, there are many things that you'd rather do with your time, and even eating. There, there are uh, forms of discount rate, right? Like you know this, you know the salad is best, and you know that the uh, dessert placed in front of you is probably is not kind of worth it, uh, and so. The way humans actually seem to behave is that their long-term self, when they're making plans, uh, is a good discounter, a rational discounter. They make good decisions in in terms of deferring consumption. But huh? but then the short-term self, the one who's actually acting, when they get uh, when they're presented with a weakness, something stimulating they act as if their discount rate is absurdly high, like 100% annualized or more, right? Um, and examples are like, you go out to dinner, you go to Carbone and you know that it's it would be a great experience to be with your friends and just keep it reasonable and have like a nice 1500 calorie meal. Um, but then the food actually arrives on the table and you act like you've never seen food before. And you have uh, a 5,000 calorie vodka rigatoni plus, plus full veal parm. And then the dessert <laughs> comes and you have that too. Right. And you leave with like 6,000 calorie meal that would take you a month of exercise to work <laughs> off, you know? And and with that, you've behaved as if your discount rate for time is like hundreds of percent annualized, right? Like you haven't, the the, the person who was actually acting in the short term was like unable to stay consistent with the long-term planner, right? Yeah, um, but that, isn't that like the, the human condition? Like we're bad at making, that's what I, that's why I was confused when you say, uh they make good long-term decisions i was thinking oh oh really uh i was thinking because like this in my mind is about the long term because if you can't make these decisions right which literally no one does then are you i i, I think i'm misunderstanding something maybe when the goal is really long term that they appropriate the right amount of time or uh, I, I don't really follow uh, the difference in like where where are people making good decisions because I thought that everyone was making bad decisions in these kinds of arenas. If that makes sense, they can't in the moment they lose track of the long term is what I would have thought. Yes. Um, okay. So my book is for you, right? You you have a sort of some degenerate qualities, which. I, the title I probably uh, uh, I, I probably could have come up with a better title. I thought it was funny at the time. It may, it probably has turned people off. Maybe I need to come up with some new chapters and retitle it or something. But but it it has I will say it has a nice quiet following. People mention it to me, and I think it's been a valuable book for uh, many people. Many people that have 
some degenerate tendencies, right? Which is a very large percentage of the poker community. Um, so you say that you think all people behave this way. What I would what I would say is that if you look at the popular books in organization, you look yeah. at someone like David Allen or uh, Tim Ferriss. I love him, but he, he's still guilty of basically assuming that the person is perfect oh. all the time. Like they make long term. Oh like, yeah, yeah. They're I've like machine, machine like in their in their perfection in terms of execution. And, yeah, it's and like, my, huh? Go ahead. My point, my point is that uh, you need a a more uh, practical philosophy of organization. Um, and I think in this short book, I do a good job of of explaining my uh, my general philosophy. I also need to reread it because there are some important lessons that uh, that one tends to forget. Uh, yeah, that's one thing that really annoyed me about some of these books. Like one was called uh, No Excuses, these self-help books. And I'm sitting here reading this like, what? You expect someone to read this book? And the guy would say, sugar is the root of all evil. And he's like, how many people do you know that have dropped sugar? I mean, you know, American obesity is like plus like 40% or some insane, insane amount of percent. And like if people can't even do that, are they going to impl implement all those changes? And... I mean, I don't know who's doing this. I guess like a very small percent of the population is capable of just reading a book and now saying, oh, okay, now I'm going to make all these changes. I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works, as you said. Uh, and I do think that the approaches are not very practical in actually helping a large audience. It's just kind of like, oh, this is what I do or what I say I do, I should say, and then uh, giving it to a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I, I could see that absolutely true with Tim Ferriss. He's like, yeah, go follow your dreams and go get the you can get the four hour work week but i mean it's a catchy title but uh it's a it's a long road to get there you know what i mean yeah i was surprised at the success of atomic habits i thought it was a good book but it also sort of assumes perfection right it assumes yeah 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 I mean, they had some good ideas of how to change things. I mean, it, I think it's kind of obvious, for example, like you, if you're trying to like cut out all the bad stuff, don't keep fucking uh, cookies in your in your pantry. I mean, you want to make it as hard as possible to get those cookies. Um, and I think some stuff like that is obvious, like stacking habits, I find to be very difficult and that kind of thing. So uh, I, I like the, the premise of what you're trying to do. Actually, it does seem like something that should be really built on. Um, I have a, I mean, I have ideas related related to that. I want to talk a bit about some of your other books, um, and some of the other things that you're into. Uh, I know you you teach game theory. I am curious how that, you know, I've actually read the mathematics of poker. Uh, let me tell you that. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about your experience in teaching game theory and how does that actually relate to poker? It, yeah, go ahead. Well, game theory is the science of strategic interaction. Poker has always been central to the study of game theory. I I don't know if the study of game theory improves your poker in any way, although um I think that I think that the the development of modern poker theory would not have happened if not for the uh, the science of game theory. Um, so it, it, it can't hurt, but it's, it's not strictly necessary for the poker player, right? Um, however, like studying the science of strategic interaction, that seems to be uh, kind of a good background for poker. And, and what, what I think is that when I read a good book about poker theory, my my background in game theory allows me to see uh, why the solution is the solution somewhat more quickly uh, than if I hadn't studied game theory, right? Like I'm I'm able to see 
when I when I observe a best response to best response solution to a particular problem, I'm able to, I think, uh, see why the solution is the solution relatively quickly because I've seen other solutions of the type. Um, and I, when I read uh, a book like, I don't know, a good no limit book, say Acevedo's uh, Modern Poker Theory, or more recently when I was studying Heads Up PLO and I read Corey Mikesell's book on Heads Up PLO, um, I think the processing of a book like that is is easier because I've seen the principles of game theory applied in other settings. Um, and I enjoy it, right? Like I enjoy working through Corey's book and seeing the solution to a particular problem and thinking about why that solution is the solution. Okay. Okay. I can see a lot of what you're saying. Um, I do think like knowing a bit of game theory is useful. I don't find like going through the mathematics, like particularly useful. I find it really challenging to do that. And, uh, yeah, that kind of thing, but it is, I do find, um, the solution or something like applied game theory interesting. And uh, as you mentioned, I, or as I mentioned, excuse me, I, I failed game theory twice is the funny thing, but I can see how it could be used um, or how there's definitely like, I could see how because of game theory, poker game theory evolved. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what does interest well, me is- I you're the computer science guy, so you might be able to explain this stuff a little better than I can. But I, um, the way the way I would explain it is that the science of game theory offered a way forward for solving games that turned out to be uh, not especially useful or not the best way to go. Um, and so the way that we solve games at the frontier now, yeah, is uh related to the science of game theory, but it's not exactly the science of game theory. Um, so if you watch a movie like Alpha Go about DeepMind's effort to beat Go, essentially they tell the story of how early on for chess engines and for for go engines they used uh game trees and they they sought solutions game theoretic solutions to the, to the problem and that turned out to be not the best way to go relative to uh a computational solution where you lay out the objective function and then let the computer play against itself millions of times and converge upon a best response to best response solution. You may have to uh, translate that a little bit, uh, but my interpretation is it sounds like to me, you don't go purely from the theoretical route. You, it's better to actually go the experiential route, um, even for the computer and just let it like iterate it and figure it out basically by like, kind of stumbling in the dark would be the equivalent of like what a person might do for poker. Um, is that what you're trying to say? Correct. That's, that's exactly right. And it, it's still in that process. Um, applying some game theoretic principles. Okay. So for instance, experientially it is eliminating dominated nodes of the game tree right okay, okay. and yeah, that yeah. that is sort of a game theoretic principle you could also just yeah. say it's a logical principle but it's it is it's well, it's type of thing that, yeah I, I i by the way this isn't like i don't know like a ton about this but i know what that means and for the viewers i don't know what the hell that we're, we're talking about this would be like this would be like uh an example in poker would be, you know, you decided to raise uh, 10-8 offsuit from early position and you've got enough sample that you realize, oh shit, this is a bad idea. Probably it's not a good idea to raise 10-8, 10-9 offsuit from early position and you just like take away that uh, that whole like strategy of like 
playing that. That would be like an extreme example of what you're talking about. But then I presume the computer does that more and more and more so and does that does so at an insane level. Is that correct? Yes. I, yes. I wasn't even 100 percent sure when I was explaining it. Um by and the then, way. And like when you look at at how they what the overall solution to the problem comes up with, like just let's say you you observe that in a certain situation, their bet sizing on the end is always pot in PLO, or it's always all in and no limit, even if all yeah. in is like a multiple of the pot. Yeah. Um, that is that is another situation of they've eliminated they've eliminated dominated branches of the tree. Yes. Right. It's yeah. just in the, in that case, the dominated branch of the tree is something less than all in. Right. Because, oh, yeah, yeah. because the all in is forcing better and better hands into indifference relative to the dominated nodes of the tree and they're eliminating the dominated nodes. This um, makes sense to me. It's, it's, it's like game theoretic, for... it's, it's game theoretic principles, but it, it hasn't been come upon by uh, the science of game theory. It's been come upon computationally. Um. To use an example from poker, okay, various overbets were uh, not especially common in the pre-solver era, right? You can read through mathematics of poker and see why they make sense analytically. And perhaps if we had worked through things um, using the science of game theory, we would have gotten to the same place. Um, but we maybe got there earlier computationally. Uh, another example is from the movie AlphaGo. The reason that they beat the human champion unexpectedly early is because they were often surprising the human champion with moves that they had never encountered before right and um theoretically maybe they could have uh come to those through just an extensive analysis of the game tree right but it they probably got to them more quickly using the computational approach that they actually uh did from playing other players you mean from having the computer play against itself tens of millions of times subject to minimal oh, oh, I right? see talking like like the way the way that we work through poker is um you can have the computer play against itself and converge best response to best response subject to some tight constraints like bet sizing constraints and things like that or you can have it uh play against itself subject to minimal constraints and Minimal constraints takes a long time, but maybe you're getting better solutions. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I can I can see how. Yeah, I can see how. Uh, oh, I should say it's a bit surprising that that's the case, but that uh, I would think that gives some kind of advantage over AI, and that it doesn't generally reach that uh well apparently not in this case um it's just interesting that it didn't get to that whole theme of an idea very easily this idea of partitioning off the trees even though it's like a simple idea and it just applies to everything and i have uh, an example myself of uh that may be useful um for for the audience to understand this a bit I took a bit of a relative sort of strategy of partitioning off the trees for my limited Scrabble experience when I had to play a Scrabble match against you. Uh, do you remember? We had a high-stakes Scrabble match. Yeah, Australia. I remember that in Australia. Yeah. So um, I was paired to play a Scrabble match with you with uh, through Tony G somehow. And Tony G has some catchwords such as, uh, what is it, on your bike, 
and like some really simple words that were worth way more points than the typical words of Scrabble. They were worth like 50 points and there was like one four letter word like shot or I forget what other goofy shit does he say, but I was sitting there thinking, there's no way I'm going to beat this dude, this Harvard grad guy in a Scrabble. There's no way I'm going to actually be, be better than this guy. So my whole strategy was around like thinking of combinations of getting these 50 word points um, that were like short. There's like one, uh, I think bike was one of the words. Bike was like 50 points all of a sudden in Scrabble. And so I was thinking, okay, how do I uh, get, how do I make it just bike, just put out bike or whatever and look for those kinds of combos of words. That was my strategy um, to keep it really simple. I cut off all the other parts of looking for other kinds of words and looking for all these like convoluted words in general, these weird mix-ups. Um, I believe that applies, right? Like I was just, that was my relative, uh, I, I, I ignored all the other trees because they just weren't, weren't time efficient. And yes, uh, a real strategy would have included those. Um, but I just, with my limited Scrabble experience, this was like a relative way for me to playing the most optimal way that I could against you. Uh, does yeah, that fit? like a hack. Yeah. Which is always a good way to proceed. By the way, I just want to say that I was all but dissertation in my doctoral program. So technically I'm not a Harvard grad. You've said it a couple of times. So I just want to, I taught uh, at Harvard for nine years, but I didn't technically graduate because I was all but dissertation, meaning that I did all of the coursework, but didn't finish the, the dissertation. Well, I would think that teaching at uh, Harvard for nine years, um, how do you say it, uh, it supersedes the fact that you did not graduate. There's probably a lot more people that graduated that had no shot of teaching. Teaching is like a whole other ball game. Like that's my point of view. Uh, I mean, graduating it by itself isn't like teaching is a, like a real world thing. Like to teach, you got to put together a curriculum. You have to public speak. You have to do all these things that are that a lot of people are just incapable of doing. Like period, uh, or lack the courage or whatever to actually do. So. Uh, the irony is you've done something superior in my eyes than become uh, a college, college graduate. This is like become a, become a hard to be, to get into Harvard is hard, but to actually graduate is probably like relatively not nearly as hard as actually getting in the first place. And even then it's still like a commonly done thing. I appreciate that. Cer certainly if you don't like research and you're a little bit ADD, it's uh it's hard to get through the, the dissertation phase. Oh, yeah. The, bottom, hey, the bottom form of teaching is uh, podcasting. So now you're a, you're a podcaster. How are you liking it? Uh, it's a good, no one's ever, no, people have asked me that a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm liking it quite a bit. Uh, this was my way of trying to basically, in some way, I, I, ha I was trying to apply game theory actually to, my whole life strategy, but I was failing in all sorts of ways. I still am not really 100% there, but this is a much more difficult subject. Um, I have a thought on that I want to ask you about um, because I don't really, I, we'll get to that in a second, but uh, I'm mostly liking it, yeah. Uh, it kind of fits my personality in some ways. It also requires that it's like a soft push in the direction that I want to go in. Uh, I want to be a better person who's uh, getting to know people. And in doing this, I'm getting to know you. Uh, I'm also building a connection with you. I also learning all of a sudden how to manage a team, which is what I want to do. It's like a cheap way to become, to become like a leader of a team and practice those skills. And it's, it's actually effective. It's like a real world uh, motivator um it requires a small level of organization and commitment things like that so i actually am enjoying it even though i'm not really succeeding uh in an extreme way anytime soon uh it's good real world experience kind of thing um it's this is me trying to effectively use what you were talking about this method of like i just think it's a better way to from the game theory, theoretical perspective of life, it's a better way to uh, 
to try to satisfy multiple different objectives at once. And it uh, forfeits a lot of inferior strategies, if that makes sense. It's like throwing myself into the fire a little bit. And also, um, it's getting some, I guess you could say some computa computations. Does this make sense? Sure. Um, you use the word succeeding. What, is, what does that mean? So for me, I really enjoy podcasts as a consumer. Yeah. I love to listen to podcasts. So for me, my podcast is like a small contribution to that ecosystem. Yeah. And it does cost a little bit to put out an episode. Maybe it costs a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. And I don't have advertising. So there is a spend of $200 plus my time, I guess. Um, and it does make it sometimes a struggle for motivation, but I've kept it up for a few years now. Yeah. Um, I question what, what does succeeding mean? Right. Like, uh, what, is, like what is, what is the objective? Succeeding in the sense of a very superficial way of looking at things. Let's put it like this. Um, because actually it's a good question. Uh, Succeeding meaning you know, like 200,000 views, like that kind of thing, measuring it in that sense. And you're actually right. 200,000 views per episode? Yeah, I'm nowhere near there. Yeah, but uh, do you realize how elite that would be in the in the world of podcasting? Like an elite podcast, a top 1% podcast would be one that consistently gets 10,000 views per episode. Really? 10,000. Yeah, that that would be like an elite top one percent podcast. Wow. Okay, I didn't realize like that's one percent. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're comparing yourself to a universe of like the all in podcast or some some big podcasts that are tens of thousands of dollars per episode. You and you can't compare yourself to stuff that's coming out as part of a podcast network where other podcasts are promoting them and things like this, like uh, 200,000 is in the stratosphere. Okay. Well, that's good to know because, uh, well, all right. This is um, actually a common theme of error that's happening a lot today is that people see like these like extreme variations of success. And they're like, oh, that's the norm. Uh, and I didn't realize it was like that far away from whatever. I mean, I didn't like put two and two together. I didn't realize, oh, like getting that kind of viewership is like well over 1%. I didn't know that. Um, interesting. But, uh, that's yeah, good to know. Uh, yeah, it's succeeding in all the, uh, ways that I think it's meaning to. It's hard to like measure growth, but the real, uh, risk it's actually like this is risk in practice this is a uh, a test to try to basically grow as myself and make connections and provide some value and explore some new possibilities and also uh to get th people thinking about poker in a different kind of way um i'm going to talk a little bit about um economics also how how does game theory relate to economics or is this just like a totally i mean how different could it be like these these topics seem like uh not that far away game theory economics um i think there's like some kind i know what utilitarianism was which was, a, which was an area that was interesting to me is a, a subset of economics i don't actually i think it is related to behavioral economics but basically what i'm asking is how does all of what we're talking about relate to economics in, in your field of study um is there like a direct crossover for you or did you come about being inter interested in economics in another way so you have two branches. You have microeconomics and macroeconomics. Yes. Microeconomics is very mathematical. Uh, and I would say that that game theory, the science of strategic interaction is in microeconomics. Yeah. Whereas when people think about economics, they usually think in terms of macroeconomics, like inflation and GDP and unemployment and all of that type of stuff. 
Um, so I would say game theory is very much a part of economics, but it's a part of microeconomics, individual choice, individual behavior, individual maximization according to preferences. Um, and utility theory is part of microeconomics. Yeah. Utilitarianism is really branching into philosophy. Oh, it's uh, yeah. it's Jeremy Bentham. It's uh, yeah, I've read about his stuff a little. It's a it's a philosophy. Uh, but utility theory is central to microeconomics, right? Right. Right. Okay. Microeconomics is about maximization of utility subject to constraints, where where utility is defined for an individual. Um, and when people talk about economics, they're they're often talking about macroeconomics, which is built up from microeconomic foundations, but often kind of gets far afield and gets very empirical. Like what is the relationship between inflation and unemployment and these sorts of things? Okay. That's a, a decent summary. It is, it does sound very, very complicated uh, on the whole. And I, I guess when we throw like philosophy and like maximizing one's life, which is essentially what utilitarianism attempts to do. Uh, I mean, describe getting um comparing that to game theory and things like that is a little bit uh, complicated i would think although why don't we just like put that to the side a bit and talk about uh your relationship with economics um and game theory what uh what's your focus exactly i know you actually do write about macroeconomics you uh were you know like I know you researched for the big short, very famous film. Well, yeah, I was uh, the main research assistant for the book. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> and then it did become a fun movie. I've, I've always enjoyed economics research more on the macro side. I enjoy reading a lot about the macro economy and I guess if you were to segment my podcasting interests, they're, they're often in, in economics, finance, macroeconomics, politics. Uh, so that's, that's an area where I do a lot of my reading. And I guess if you were to segment my podcast guests, maybe half are talking about economics and markets. 20% are talking about poker and 30% are talking about something else. Okay. It sounds like a very wide range of interests. That's almost, it's very daunting just for like how many areas of knowledge it's, it's uh, crossing over into, but it's also exciting for the same reason. Uh, fear and excitement are actually quite related to each other. Um, I do want to ask, how does game theory relate to your focus because you said that game theory more specifically really relates to microeconomics and i know that macroeconomics is more complicated because it's not so um what's the word it's not so uh linearly defined it's it's it depends on multiple different like economics is complicated because uh it's an emergent system is my understanding and that it depends on many many factors that are working together at once uh, so I'm curious, it seems like game theory kind of does focuses a bit on the opposite of that, which is like kind of taking a portion of reality and putting it, like trying to like look at it as it's like isolated piece, if that makes sense. Is this, is this making sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, my experience in game theory is that. I took a few grad courses in it when I was a grad student, and then I taught it to undergrads. But since then, I'm I'm not active in game theory other than reading poker books and reading oh, poker okay, books okay. And, and thinking about and thinking about how uh, 
game theory might be informing some of that content. So, so these days, my my uh, game theory is just strictly applied poker poker stuff. Okay, okay, that does answer the question in an easy way. So it does sound like your economics interest is a little bit. Uh, it's not exactly a. It's not. Um, exactly a byproduct of your interest in game theory. They're not like that related necessarily. I would, it looks like they might've been related, but it sounds like it's just not. It sounds like it's just a totally, a fairly different uh, subject for you. Yeah, that's right. Like when you're, when you're doing econ grad school type courses, you have your, your first year courses, which are like microeconomic theory, macroeconomic theory, econometrics. And then, and then you have your second year courses and there you'll have okay. some you'll have some macroeconomics courses like international trade international macroeconomics and then you'll have some microeconomic courses like game theory yeah right and you kind of in the second year start to determine which of the elective courses are are more interesting for you and then you dive a little deeper and for me game theory was of interest when i was a grad student um but it's not like i i've had any ongoing research in that area it was my my progress sort of stopped after the teaching years and then lately it's just for fun if you will just my my applied work, my my fun study in the in the poker streets. Oh, okay, okay. Uh yeah. Makes some kind of sense. Uh games are supposed to be fun. So story checks out. I I have a uh I have an idea that I've been pursuing. Uh and unfortunately, well, I want to throw it out there even though it looks like it's going to need some reframing of sorts related to economics of sorts. Um, one area of interest for, that uh, has interested me is the idea of applying game theory to, uh, and this would cross over to utilitarianism to a degree, applying ga game theory to social behavior, if that makes sense. Like in poker, you can see that certain behaviors are more beneficial on the whole than uh, than other behaviors. Um, and this actually relates to what we were talking about earlier, which was this idea that people are not so good at making like these short-term decisions when considering the long run, if that makes sense. Right, I'm following. Okay. Uh, so an example would be, a perfect example would be, you're playing poker, you just get sucked out on by the fish, and you say, damn it, and get really mad, and, and you're frustrated, and you don't know where to point this anger, and you point it at the, at the VIP. Uh, in my mind, this is like, well, first of all, it's going to make the VIP, uh, or fish, or whatever you want to call them, uh, not want to play against you in the future, which will hurt the game and you in the long run. In my mind, this is like the example that you gave me with the the carbon dinner. You like somehow eat like five thousand dollar calorie or five thousand calories, and it's going to take you months to work that off. And so, you basically forfeit. You your 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 hunger got the best of you, and so now um, you you forfeit the long term goal for the sake of the short term. And in this case, it would be your anger getting the best of you. And you forfeit the long-term EV, even in a just a pure monetary perspective, not to mention happiness or like being liked, for example. Uh, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. My points of clarification are that you can be clear about your own preferences. Yes. Right. So I can say, based on my own preferences, that if I go to Carbone and have the 6,000 calorie dinner, that that is gluttonous and that that is me engaging in very short-term behavior yeah. that is not consistent with the way that I want to trade off things over time, yes. right? 
yeah. So yeah. I can say that that's hyperbolic discounting. That's giving into weakness on my part. That's something that I would like to change. Yes. Um, and there's a danger when you try to apply your preferences to say something about someone else's behavior. Yeah. Because you, I, don't know the, you don't know their preferences. So you can, you can think that maybe if you did know their preferences, that, that, that might be uh hyperbolic discounting or whatever, but you don't know for sure. So in the anger yeah. thing, I would say, if you do it, then you can make a strong statement and say that, that, that was a mistake by me. Uh, that's something I would like to change about myself. Yes. Right? I, I see exactly what you're saying. But, but you don't, you don't really, we, we can point out when someone else does it, that that's probably, but we can't say for sure. Right. And I just want to say, uh, you've talked about utilitarianism. It really does get into philosophy because in economics, um, you really don't know others' preferences, right? We can we can try to yeah. Uh, well, we can try to we can try to say that someone is likely to have logical preferences. We can see how their preferences are revealed by their actual decisions over time. Yes. Um, but. It gets dangerous when you start assuming what other people's preferences are, right? Sure. And utilitarianism, it's a philosophy because it's sort of about the greatest utility for the greatest number. Yes. Um, but it's historically been kind of a dangerous force because oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it leads to the concept of like the benevolent dictator. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it leads to this idea of someone deciding what's best for everyone and taking away human volition. Right. Whereas you think about, say, the U.S. economic system and we might have uh, fewer highways and not quite the nicest airports in the world, but we do a good job of catering to people's preferences as strange as they are right like yeah. just walk down las vegas boulevard and it's like is it ideal that sort of our gdp is spent on uh lots of rich food and highly alcoholic drinks and uh fancy shows and and multi-million dollar wastes of water and things like this like is that the ideal use of resources maybe not but it does uh a great job of satisfying people's preferences as odd as they are right so yeah so microeconomics is is about efficiently uh satisfying preferences however uh weird those preferences might be right okay. and so the, the danger of say utilitarianism as a philosophy is um there's always the temptation to say, oh, I know what your preferences should look like. So just listen to me and I'll do what's best for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see that for sure. I uh, This was a subtlety that took me a while to get over myself. I didn't value the... Um, it, I've come to look at the necessity of of uh, volition and ethics, uh, the necessity of things to choose, for which I actually have a solution in towards in into uh, into even the game theory aspect in a way. I mean, yeah, you're right. Okay, theoretically, the you know the guy who gets really angry at whoever can um, they can that can be what they think they want whatever that can be what they want however you want to say it um related to all that it's kind of like you get to related to the game theory aspect of things you can still pick like who you hang out with and your actions and things like that uh and then actually making change there's only one way to change uh people like that is just show by example uh and 
that sort of thing. You can't really, you have to let them decide for themselves, essentially. You have to let people decide for themselves. Um, and yeah, that's that's an important aspect that's kind of almost paradoxical in game theory is like, how do you account for these sorts of, or not in game theory, but in social, like it, in maybe utilitarianism or that would apply to the game theory of social behavior somehow uh if that makes sense i mean this is an yeah, area there I'm is a, there is a whole aspect of game theory like, like for instance the concept of auction design is part of game theory right or or mechanism design where where you want something to run smoothly and you need to accommodate many different individual incentives and preferences and you want a structure where everyone sort of going by their own incentives is still making a workable whole uh, for the system, right? Yeah. Like you think about Matt Savage, the problem he has, it's quite difficult, right? You have to run a tournament, uh, come up with the right rules when everyone is narrowly maximizing. Uh, how do you How do you come up with a a cohesive structure and a great overall experience, right? He's the best. He's, he figures out how to do it. Uh, they do an amazing job at the world series, right? Like it's a, it's a tough problem. And uh, the mechanism design can involve a little, a little game theory. Well, let's leave uh, the audience with that, all those thoughts and all those sorts of things to ponder. We can't solve these problems today. It's been great having you on this show, Brandon. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to your thoughts on many different areas. And uh, yeah, I wish you the best success. All right, sounds great. I'll chat with you later.